0: Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we are discussing Robert Altman's spin on Country House Murder Mysteries, Gosford Park, which was released in 2001 and was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It features an expansive cast of icons of British cinema, including Clive Owen, Kristen Scott Thomas, Helen Mirren, Michael Gambon, and Maggie Smith as the servants and aristocrats, staying at an estate in the English countryside for a weekend in the early 1930s, where, predictably enough, someone winds up dead. This episode was sponsored by our wonderful patron, Kira, via Patreon. If you would like to force us to watch a film of your choosing, that option is available to you. Uh, This was a thrilling assignment because this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'd actually watched it recently and didn't have to rewatch it for this because it is burned into my brain. I just rewatched it 10 minutes ago. Yes.
1: Amazing movie. I saw this, I guess, in my early teens and God, it's good. Great, great film.
0: So we're ready to talk about this. Before we dive in, uh, we wanted to discuss something else, which you will lead us off with. Yeah, so um, our
1: podcast, Overinvested, is eligible for a Hugo Award. Uh, This is perhaps not the finest episode to select to announce that because the Hugos are for sci-fi and fantasy content. However, it should be clear to regular listeners that that is a key theme in our podcast yeah basically if you are able to nominate for the Hugos so if you're someone who is like a world WorldCon attendee uh last year this year or next year or you are one of those people who like buys a supporting membership you can nominate us we would be happy to be nominated um it's one of those things where like if you get enough nominations then you end up on a short list and um yeah if you like our podcast please support us and uh thank you all right, let's start talking about this non-sci-fi film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we have done a Robert Almond movie in the past, which we will link to, of course, which is Nashville, which he made in the 70s, which is uh, different from this movie in some ways and very similar in other ways. Uh, that is about the country music scene in Nashville. So in terms of the sort of setting and content, obviously very different from this, which is, you know, aristocratic society in England in the 30s. But um, features some similar stylistic approaches, which is that it has like a zillion characters and uh, the dialogue is sort of overlapping and you can't always understand people because it is designed to make you feel like you're kind of there with these people and there's just a lot going on all at once. But um, it is interesting to sort of think about them in conjunction because, I mean, we're not going to talk about Nashville particularly here, but if you look over his filmography, I mean, he just made like a zillion movies. I've seen a lot of Altman movies and the proportion of his filmography that I've seen is like 5% because he is just so prolific. And the 70s when Nashville came out was the sort of big peak time of his career. He had so many great films at that point. MASH came out then, which was his breakout. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Long Goodbye, which is amazing. Three Women. Three Women. Um, it just goes on and on. And then the 80s was sort of uh, a downturn. I have not seen a single movie of his that was released in the 80s because they're all supposed to be terrible. So I mean, I hadn't even heard of the movies he'd made in the 90s. So at the beginning of the 90s, he makes The Player and Shortcuts. I've seen The Player. I haven't seen Shortcuts. But both of those are... I mean, the player is great, and Shortcuts is also supposed to be great. And you can see on the Wikipedia page, they have like a zillion, you know, um, awards listed next to them. And then the rest of the 90s also are kind of a fallow period. And I think a lot of people at the time were sort of like, oh, you know, he's lost it. He was quite old at this point. And then in 2001, he makes Gosford Park, which is the last great movie of his career. And... He does a few things after that, but this was definitely this big big apex near the end. And um, it is one of the best movies he ever made, for sure. So it's kind of neat that it happened. And it meant that you have a lot of these actors from a later period who got to be in this great Altman movie, which is just neat for viewers. The
1: casting is just unreal, and it's this perfect kind of meeting point between two very popular in quite overdone genres so it's sort of like historical dramas about this very specific period of the sort of the the tail end of when the British aristocracy was really really powerful and also kind of murder mysteries um, very much in the vein of Agatha Christie and then recently we had Knives Out as a kind of revival of those themes and this is very much playing on those in a really obvious way but it's also much more naturalistic and it's one of those rare films where every single character no matter how tiny has an incredibly well conceived role and not just kind of plot wise cuz like it is it is quite plotty but it's more to do with just like the characterization and like the observation of the way people behave it's just incredibly well directed and performed
0: well what's so amazing about it is that it is in many ways a totally just naturalistic drama yeah, like and it's you... just the fact that it happens to be set in the
1: setting makes you think of all these other things because it's like yes. playing in a familiar sandbox, but like does not feel like you're watching a Poirot film because like the there's such a clear difference. You know, when you sit down and watch something that is Poirot-esque, they set out every character very, very clearly and when you're watching this movie, you have to really pay attention to even know who the characters are. Like that is kind of one of those almond movie things where because there's like 25 protagonists, you know, um, you have to sit there and be like, well, who is Mr. Stockbridge? You know, and by the end, obviously you do understand and that's kind of how it's meant to work. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't set things out easily for you from the start.
0: Yes. And he does invoke lots of kind of familiar tropes of fiction of this type, by which I mean both detective fiction and just, like, British society fiction, right? So the head of this wealthy family, who's called Sir William, is unhappy in his marriage. He's married to this kind of bitchy woman, and he's also sleeping with her sister, and then there's a young servant who winds up sleeping with the wife, and there's these Hokey is definitely not the right word, but like the scene where he, the servant who's played by Ryan Philippe, goes up to her room is definitely played for like salacious value, right? It's very fun. (laughs) And the music is very... Designed to make you feel like you're having a fun time, right? Like the movie's yes. supposed to be entertaining.
1: Well, they've got all this kind of live music in it because one of the characters is literally Ivan Novello and he's sort of singing these yeah. chirpy 1930s like fun tunes on the
0: piano. Right. <laughs> but if you specifically hone in on any of the individual characters and the things that they are experiencing throughout the movie, just feels like something that could plausibly be happening. And all of the actors are so incredible, and we'll go through them in great detail. But they're so good that it feels so much more real than most anything else in either of those genres would, particularly detective fiction, which is so cookie-cutter most of the time. Yeah. And And I I like that stuff. By by definition it's quite contrived. Right. And like I went through a phase, I think I mentioned this when we were doing the Knives Out episode you know when i was in middle school i read like dozens and dozens of agatha christie novels they're so much fun but the whole point of those books is that they're very superficial and you know she was sort of uh, would say herself i think that she was not very good at psychology like that just wasn't what she was interested in and this by contrast is so nuanced in its depiction of people and the murder doesn't happen until i think over halfway through it's over halfway the through the movie yeah So the point is not really that, although that obviously does drive a lot of the plot. And then the detective character who shows up is played by Stephen Fry in an incredibly (laughs) amusing role. And um, he is absolutely incompetent, like does not know anything. His sort of deputy lieutenant or whatever, who's just a normal cop, keeps being like, Please stop touching the evidence. Like, maybe we should look at this incredibly important thing over here. And he's like, No, 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 it's fine. (laughs) So it's very obvious very quickly that he is not going to be the way you find out what happened. So it's not going to progress in a sort of predictable way. Although, of course, you do figure it out at the end because it's a story. But it, does, it just does a really good job of sort of invoking these familiar things, but also doing them in a way that feels new and interesting and more naturalistic than you would normally get in one of those stories. Yeah,
1: I mean it's very much like obviously kind of the premise of all of these big old house murder mysteries is that multiple people can have a motive and there's always lots of interpersonal drama happening with all of the characters to make the story interesting and that's the same here, but it it unbalances that concept a bit in the sense that it makes it more obvious that the murder is just one of the things that's going on rather than all of the other subplots being subordinate to the murder. So you're like, well, sure, there's this murder happened, but it's not the central plot and you're caring equally about other stuff that's happened to other characters, like the things that are happening in their sex lives and like their financial troubles. And it's like, this person's life has technically ended, but other people's lives have been ruined or changed irrevocably for various reasons.
0: Yes. And the person who gets murdered who i mean we can just say this now it's pretty clear is sir william who's the head of the family who owns this michael Michael gambin yes and (laughs) he just sucks so much that by the time this (laughs) happens you're like good riddance (laughs) to you goodbye so you don't feel bad at all that he's dead you of course want to know who killed him because it's a murder mystery but the idea that Like, justice must be served is completely absent from this at all. Not that the Poirot books are like deeply invested in the idea of like justice, but usually you'll have someone who's like bad in some way and they have to get punished because that's how someone gets their comeuppance. Right. And in this, that's not how you feel (laughs) at all because it's just like, okay, this really miserable, awful man has died. And that ties into. The really genius thing about this movie which is that it's just incredibly intelligent about politics which we've already kind of alluded to referring to the fact that this was the period when the British aristocracy was in decline and you sense among the upstairs characters the wealthy characters that some of them kind of are aware of this in a very unconscious way and some of them are completely in denial about it and there's lots of sort of undercurrent stuff about imperialism when they are discussing their financial problems and it's not something that gets discussed in a particularly explicit way that this is on the way out but it's clearly the context of the film and obviously, the relationship between the upstairs and the downstairs characters is the central theme of the movie, and the idea that these like ho- horrible rich people are horrible and rich is the point. And so, melding all of that sort of political awareness to this fun mystery story is done very effectively. And so, then when the guy who gets killed is like the worst rich man, you're just like, oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Good riddance,
1: you know. Which is, like, completely fascinating in the context of Downton Abbey which I think we should talk about before we go any further (laughs) because this film it's an Altman movie before anything else but it was written by Julian Fellows who is the writer creator of Downton Abbey and if you've seen Downton Abbey and this you'll see that there's a lot of overlap like especially most obviously Maggie Smith is playing a very similar role in Downton Abbey and there's a lot of sort of behind the scenes rumours and controversy about how much of this film was actually written by Julian Fellows which is a really fascinating story that I think possibly Morgan told me about first like years ago and so today I was kind of just looking up an interview with Julian Fellows to see what he said of this because obviously Altman is like an American filmmaker and he makes very American films and this is an extraordinarily British English film and altman brought in julian fellows to write this movie it was his first big writing project it's still his most successful movie although now he's known as the downton abbey guy and it's because julian fellows is a real life member of the aristocracy he has a very close relationship with the source material and that's been like kind of the main thrust of his career because like in his earlier years he was a not very successful actor And this film clearly made it obvious that he should just be doing nothing but projects that are about the British aristocracy. They also had various kind of consultants who had worked below stairs. They had like a butler and a maid and stuff who were direct consultants on the film. And kind of the mythology behind this film is that even though this movie won best screenplay at the Oscars for Julian Fellows, Altman significantly rewrote the film on set. And if you're familiar with Downton Abbey, which I am, It's very different and a lot of that is to do with just Altman's incredible skill as a director and the fact that it is very much to do with the individual performances of each actor, Mm. like it's a much more sophisticated piece of art than Downton Abbey is, but even though Julian Fellows has said that this is a rumour, there's an interview we will link to in the show notes where he kind of talks about this, Okay, so he basically said in this interview, 90% of Gosford was not only written by me, but written with plenty of notes from Bob, meaning Altman, before shooting began. Bob liked to have the actors say scripted lines, and then if the scene was still continuing to bang on until it was over, naturally it's only applied to the big group scenes. So that obviously kind of explains why there's all these people talking over each other in a lot of his scenes. But just kind of politically and in terms of social observation, I would find it, quite hard to believe that Julian Fellows had started out at the gate with his first major piece of screenwriting being this masterpiece and they're from there on out being a hack (laughs) and obviously like there are plenty of famous screenwriters like Aaron Sorkin who have better work earlier in their career and sort of go downhill but um this movie like it's it doesn't feel like Julian Fellows like yes he understands the vocal patterns of the aristocracy in the early early 20th century and he understands the historical background and yes, this film couldn't exist without him. But in terms of just the observations of everything that's going on in terms of political intrigue and just the attitude it has to class, it's completely against everything you see in his other work and also the way that he behaves in real life. Like this is a man who just generally has like a very positive view of the British aristocracy, like he is a member of the British aristocracy. And when you watch Downton Abbey, you can see very similar storylines play out. Like that that show is a big budget, like prestige soap opera, essentially. And you will see storylines that are full of melodrama and sort of, you know, rich lords having affairs with maids downstairs and sort of all this intrigue and so forth but it is so kind of warm and nostalgic about this period and you're sort of meant to buy into the idea that it's a bit sad that there aren't lords and ladies anymore and that sort of thing and I found Downton Abbey morbidly fascinating the first season was pretty good after that it gradually got like more and more grotesque it is a bizarre monument to the British class system and I, it's one of those things where it's like when Americans are like, oh, I love this show. I'm just like, okay, let me interrogate what parts of this you find so fascinating because this is like why Britain is really bad. <laughs> but in summary, Julian Fellows did write this, but also he didn't is kind of my feeling on this situation.
0: <laughs> well, I went to a screening of Nashville recently and they had a and a after with the screenwriter Uh, It was a woman called Joan Tewksbury, who was amazing. I would encourage anyone to just look her up on Wikipedia. She has lived an incredible life. She was like a performer in films early on in her career and like a dancer. And I mean, she just has lived lived through a lot. But uh, she was great. And she was talking about Altman and his style. And he was definitely sounded like he could be kind of a dick as all male directors of a certain period were but he was very very collaborative and um I I guess she had written a draft and then he had certain things in that movie that he wanted to be included and then it's all sort of wound up meshed together and then when they were actually making the movie and she was on set for that that things were added and taken out and it was you know the actors of that wrote the songs that are in the movie and it was this really really collaborative process that sounded like amazing and that Clearly it had been great for her as well. And it was really interesting to hear someone talk about it because we think of Altman as such an auteur and obviously he has such a distinct style, but it was clear listening to her talk about the process that his method was very much to get all of these things from all these people who were working on a movie and use them to sort of create this thing out of all of their talents and skills which is how movie making should work right? because it's collaborative and you have all these gifted people around you and um, that that was what kind of turned him on creatively was getting to have all of these amazing people around him and doing great work and then to exploit that in a positive sense and so I have no doubt of course that much of this film in that sense comes from Julian Fellows like he is as you say an expert on this sort of social milieu, and Altman is so American. But the idea that he is primarily responsible for the script of this is absurd to me. Like, there's just no fucking way. It's not possible. And I hadn't seen this interview, which you were just referring to, and it's just amazing. I'll read another little bit of it. He says, of course, this may have been because Bob was very aware that in Gosford Park, he was dealing with a set of characters he neither knew nor understood. And he did not want to look a fool. This is why he asked me to stand beside him for the entire shoot, which I did. (laughs) I was like, oh, sir, I just feel like that's not true. No. Yeah, it's just amazing. I mean, Jillian
1: Fallows is someone who is like personally pursued his own like baronetcy or something <laughs> like he and his wife are like the, the they're like meant to have got some hereditary peerage and like he is a peer like he's the lord right honorable julian fellows or some shit but like he wants like the special one he's been like petitioning the queen for decades like his priorities and his personal like unexamined buffoonery make it very clear this is not someone who produces this material
0: themselves Right. And you know, what's so amazing is that it's like he's He is a, a character from this. He this is literally movie, right? a character. <laughs> yeah. Because the wealthy characters in this are just so precisely observed, they just feel so right. Which again, I'm sure, is partially coming in a sort of ironic way from Julian Fellows. It's like an interesting split, right? Because you have the you have the
1: combination of like genuine expertise in the class system which came from Julian Fellows and also from the consultants who had worked below stairs who are working on the film and also you, the other half of that is someone who has an incredible talent and precision for just human observation you know which is Altman that's like his thing I'm like Julian Fellows does not have that in his other work like <laughs> like everyone is like his best work is Downton Abbey and it's like Downton Abbey is nonsense it is real nonsense <laughs>
0: I also think I mean in Obviously, there's a great benefit to having that kind of um, lived experience and expertise in a particular social milieu and uh, the best sort of acerbic satire isn't quite the right word, but uh, depiction of the upper echelons of British society that I've ever encountered are definitely the Patrick Melrose novels by Edward St. Aubin, which I may have mentioned on here before. But um, they are written by someone who grew up in that environment and is actually very brilliant and self-aware and observational. And so even though he is still of a product of that environment he can look at it and be like this is really fucked up which Julian Fellows clearly can't but i do sometimes think that people from the outside can be better at seeing something and realizing what is happening the thing i always think of here is um michael hanukkah's film cachet which is about like racism in france and he's uh, an austrian director and that movie is so perfect on that subject. I watched it in actually a French history class in college. And then he also made a film called The White Ribbon, which is about like the rise of Nazism in Austria, that feels way less sort of politically astute to me, even though it's about his own country. And I think sometimes it's really hard to look at yourself or your country, right, and really get it. But if you're an observational person going somewhere else, you can sort of assess what's happening and really understand and I think that Altman clearly had that right like he got these people and obviously it's historical so it's not like he could literally have gone to dinner with them but he so clearly has this precise understanding of both the upstairs and the downstairs people and the feeling of being slighted and insecure or you know hating to have to be invisible while these rich people are talking over you I mean it's just everything about the movie feels so exactly right in a way that's kind of magical. Like it, You just feel like you're there in a very present way.
1: It's also like, this is not a topic that is unexamined by cinema. No. So it's like, yes, you need experts, but it, it's not really the same situation As if he was like, I'm going to set this movie in like medieval Turkey, you know,
0: (laughs) you have like a billion movies also that
1: are in this, like people, people know what the general social dynamics are if you are like a Western film viewer.
0: Yeah. And it's not like we don't have class in America also, right? It's not the same situation, but the sort of American delusion is that we have no class system, which is obviously not true. well.
1: Actually, Morgan, you're soon going to be able to learn about that from Julian Fellow's next show, The Gilded Age, <laughs> which is American Downton Abbey. Where I'm personally experiencing a lot of pain here because The Gilded Age stars Christine Baranski, who is I would I would I think it would be safe to say she's my soulmate. We've not met, and I don't know anything <laughs> about her personally, but in my mind, my soulmate is Christine Baranski, the most amazing woman alive. Um, she is going to be playing like. It seemed from the plot summary I met read a few months ago, perhaps a plantation owner. <laughs> it's like the main family in the Gilded Age appear to be at least plantation owner adjacent, and I was like, wow, that's terrible. That's a real bad concept for a show. Because even if they're like, hmm, aren't these plantation owners problematic? It's Julian Fellows who's writing it. If someone was like, Julian Fellowes' grandparents were plantation owners, I'd be like, yeah, sounds about right. Like no, no, thank you. It's going to be a bad show. I will not be watching. It's unfortunate.
0: Yes, he's he's come over here to taint to us to poison as well. your waters. Yeah, especially funny because there
1: is like a running joke in Christine Baranski's other show, The Good Fight, which is a masterpiece about like a side character from Downton Abbey. It is literally in that like an actor who plays some random character has a side job in the good fight as himself. And all the American women are like, you're in Downton Abbey. And I'm like, this is the best running joke.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, we have such a fascination with that milieu in America, because even though we obviously have class divides, they aren't as defined. Like the equivalent we have is plantations, which some people wanna like get married there, so clearly there is some romanticization of that, but it's you can't really romanticize it if you're a right-thinking person for obvious reasons. And everyone in America is an anglophile. So the whole this whole setting is so appealing to people, myself included. Like I watched this movie when I was a teenager and was like, I love this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's beautiful, like the costumes are
1: amazing. Um, this is a really great example of one of those historical movies, where at least I, but I think you, in general, in the pl- in the plural, you, it really makes you think about how. Everyone in that period was wearing custom clothes, like it wasn't off-the-rack outfits. Because you will see all these kind of evening dresses the women are wearing, where it's like they're so fitted and they're so unique, and it's really obvious that like Kristen Sto- Scott Thomas has a dressmaker somewhere that's making her this like amazing ball gown that are clearly made from like a bajillion little pieces of fabric. Um, I saw in the credits that this film had the co- the costumes were by Jenny Beaven who is mostly historical costume designer, but I now always think of her as the Mad Max Fury Road designer, and I am so delighted that like she just did a whole career of this kind of film and then was like i'll do mad max next and then won an oscar for it
0: (laughs) yeah she is truly the greatest one of the best costume designers ever certainly working now yeah the costumes in this are incredible and the movie is quite smart about clothes also like textually which is really satisfying i mean people used to have like three outfits that they would just switch around and obviously this kind of person had more than that. But like there's a whole bit right at the beginning of the movie where uh, the Maggie Smith character uh, is telling her maid, like, oh, I need to have that shirt tomorrow. I've decided that I'm going to wear the same one. And then she has to, like, go wash it that night. And then one of the other upstairs characters who is having money problems wears the same dress each night because she doesn't have enough money to have multiple evening gowns because that would cost a huge amount of money at this period and all of the other women are just like bitching about her not even behind her back like she can clearly hear them they're not being subtle about it but this is like this huge faux pas that she's wearing this kind of dress and it's machine-made lace and the servants downstairs are also like this is so tacky I can't believe she has this machine-made dress my god and that kind of detail like suffuses the whole movie which really also makes you feel like you're there and that the thing is real which is part of the fun of watching something like this is that you want to feel like it's all really happening and then the other dresses are just pretty so that's fun to look at also should we get into the specific characters (laughs) 8000 specific characters it's
1: it's so funny to just like start watching this film because like when we were watching this this evening my friends and i just the credits at the beginning every single name on the credits at the beginning is this huge star where you'd be like oh i love it when that one person shows up in a british historical drama but it's like all of them
0: (laughs) and most of them were famous already Like, some of them became more famous after, but it's not a situation where, like, sometimes you have a movie where you watch it, and it's from 20 years ago, and you're like, wow, I can't believe they had all these people in it at the time. Even Talented Mr. Ripley, which we were talking about a few weeks ago, like, all the actors in that were names already, but they weren't the names they would become later. With this, it's just that everyone wanted to work with Altman so and much. There's like a
1: hundred character actors who right. are right for this type of role. The one of them that was kind of most surprising to my friends and I was Derek Jacobi, who has a really minor role. And Derek Jacobi is someone who is—I mean, he's not like Ian McKellen level, but he is very established, like highly respected British stage stage and screen actor. And he is in this as sort of one of the valets, and he just has like one—I mean, he has like a smaller role. Than any of the other famous people in this movie and you're like wow he Derek Jacobi was gonna just play like the fifth most important servant
0: like okay <laughs> like I think I really think that everyone was just oh so, for sure you know
1: like it's such a good movie for actors specifically because even the tiniest characters like I said up top have really specific roles and they are just like playing the hell out of it and not in the sense where it's like histrionic it's just there's so much kind of detail work going on here you know because there's characters that like their, you know the little personal quirks and their secrets have no relevance whatsoever to the core plot like Dorothy who is one of the millions of maids has this whole kind of personal arc with all of her emotional stuff that's going on and like has a shares a scene with one of the aristocrats that has like no relevance to anything and you're just like this is this is like so much great performance work going on here and it's like in any other film of this type, everything is very tied into just plot.
0: Yeah, I think I remember when Richard E. Grant was doing his Oscar stuff last year and giving lots of interviews, I feel like I remember him saying he was in either Shortcuts or preporte. He was in one of the 90s movies Altman did, but he's also in this playing one of the servants. And I think I remember him saying that when this movie was being made that like everyone was just beside themselves because he'd never made a movie that wasn't American before. So I think except Richard Grant, none of these actors had been in an Altman film before because there just wasn't the opportunity. And so everyone just was like, yes, please. I will do anything. (laughs) Like I do not care. Right. And that's how you get all of these people in this movie even playing really small roles like rich and they they all get a lot of screen
1: time because there's so many group scenes where there's just lots of people on screen at once and they're all doing stuff that's relevant so it's a lot like theater work in that way where it's not one of these situations where you have like loads of monologues from one person straight to the camera you have a lot of collective work and background work
0: yes lots of dinner scenes with like 20 people at the table just talking over each other I mean yeah I think he would have like many cameras going at once as this was happening so it wasn't like you'd have people talking but you just had the camera on like one interaction it's like how they do the dinners it's shooting succession I think also um although that's a lot more improvised than this would be but um yeah, it's just. I'm looking at the list here. It's like Maggie Smith, Michael Gambon, Kristen Scott Thomas, Charles Dance, Tom Hollander, James Wilby, Jeremy Northam, Bob Balaban, Ryan Philippe, like, Kelly McDonald, Clive Owen, Ellen, Helen Mirren, Eileen Atkins, Emily Watson, Derek Jacobi, Richard E. Grant. Like, I, what? How does this happen? <laughs> so. So the movie basically begins with Maggie Smith, who's playing the Countess of Trentham, who just—I mean, she's playing the better version of her character on Downton Abbey because yeah. I mean she's a
1: deliverer of mean quips,
0: yes. And uh, she arrives with her maid Mary, who's played by Kelly McDonald, and I think I guess this is after Train Spotting, so this is I think her second major role, and she's the sort of novice maid she's just started she doesn't quite know what she's doing and she gets taken under wing by Elsie who's played by Emily Watson who's sort of like the head head maid and the it's like it's a weekend party essentially so you've got all the people who work there normally and then the various guests with their maids and valets have come also so it's this big hodgepodge of people including the character played by clive owen who's called robert parks who just comes in and is like i'm a sexy man like everyone Um, clive owen clive owen in this film
1: i think like i was watching this and i was like i was obviously like not kind of paying attention to my phone or anything during this film because i was like wrapped but about halfway through morgan messaged me like oh when are we going to record about this and i just messaged her like clive owen and like no further <laughs> <laughs> no further information and like it's interesting because i'm not sure when i saw this but i think it, it may even have been in theaters which meant that i must have seen this maybe when i was 11 or something or shortly after it was definitely kind of when i was around that sort of mid-teens age so i didn't remember most of the plot i remembered stuff like ryan philippe was living a double life and that sort of thing but i also just remembered like kelly mcdonald and clive owen because just like their chemistry is amazing and it's the romance is incredible and clive owen is just like so attractive in this film not kind of visually cuz like he just always looks like Clive Owen he's just sort of you know he's a generically handsome man but like he can switch it on you know oh my god <laughs> and he has a certain quietness um he is very good at being sort of quiet and looking at people and that is why he's really good at playing lovers and assassins <laughs> you should listen to our our children of men episode which is one of my favorite films of all time if not my favorite like absolute number one and he's brilliant you know his career has been patchy I believe he turned down James Bond multiple times which is amusing when you watch this because I can just imagine people watching this film and like beating down his door to play Bond (laughs) I mean good for him
0: he didn't want the bother yeah um
1: but like his god his role in this he just he just looks at people quietly
0: (laughs) yeah I saw this I was probably like 17 ish I would say I don't remember exactly but around that age it was I feel like I probably got the DVD from Netflix. And I was just like, oh my God. Like I knew who Clive Owen was certainly because I would have seen Children of Men already, I suspect when I saw this for the first time. And uh, loved that movie, also one of my favorites ever. And I loved him because of that movie. But I saw this and I was just like, I'm overcome. Like this is too much for me. And I think it's really one of my favorite like on-screen romances even though it doesn't take up a huge amount of screen time because I just think it's so unbelievably well executed Yeah, and it feels kind of like something you would read in a novel but you get to see it which is so satisfying. Well
1: it's just the two performances are just so well done and it's like you and it works obviously because of those two characters but like the reason it works so well is because it's in the context of all the other characters Um, Because these are two very sort of self-contained figures who are basically just nice. They're nice people and there aren't very many nice people in the film at all. And you can kind of tell that, especially Clive Owen's character, who is kind of implicitly a bit older, sort of recognises Kelly McDonald's Mary's niceness, I think and they have amazing chemistry but it's like very subtle towards the beginning and it only becomes like really hot when they actually kiss once and it's like
0: this is amazing <laughs> well what's perfect about him is that he doesn't seem like a nice person to anyone else not that he's like cruel to anyone he's else he's funny though it's a particular
1: kind of like attractive male lead right yes because it's the it's the guy who knows what's up and he knows what's uh-huh. up he's smart but he's keeping it to himself and like when he's funny and mean it's in a way that we the audience can understand but it's not performative yes. to the other people who are within the story.
0: Yes. And he clearly kind of knows when other people are bullshitting and is just like, sure. Whatever. And then has no patience for any of that. He is really aggravated with Ryan Philippe's character who is a total shit heel and like tries to assault Kelly McDonald, Mary, and Clive Owen comes in and basically saves her, not in such a dramatic way as that would suggest. but In a very British way. Yes. And uh, that obviously is very appealing to you, the audience, because he's like the good one, right? And he, he just has this sort of mysterious aura, but he's really, really kind to her the whole time and she clearly finds him attractive but is also kind of like what's going on (laughs) and then you find out later (laughs) what's going on i've actually
1: thought of something that's like really crucial for this type of character and it's the ability to look at people over the top of a book (laughs) yes (laughs) it's a very specific skill and i feel like we've not we we're yet to see a role at least I've yet to see a role where Timothy Chalamet looks at people over a book, but I feel like at some point we're going to see that happen. And it's going to be in a very different way because he has a very different vibe. He's going to be a bit more of a sort of a Tom Hiddleston looking over the book figure. There's a variety of different ways to display that talent. And Clive Owen has a, just a primo version.
0: Yes. Well, he's like, he just, he, he's a man on a mission He's very confident. You don't know what is going on with him, but you can sense that and it's very appealing. And uh, he may be sort of ominous in certain ways, but he really likes this girl, and she's like, "What is what's happening?" <laughs> I think I like this, but I'm not sure. It's just great. And everything else in the movie—it's not that there aren't like real emotions happening with other characters. There definitely are, and the relationship between these two main maids, the Kelly MacDonald and the Emily Watson character is very sweet and It's very engaging and kind of real. I yes. think kind of
1: the thing with, with Kelly MacDonald and Clive Owen is that that's a very soft relationship and all the others are quite spiky.
0: Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. Because all the upstairs characters are totally just emotionally
1: dead i mean they're all really selfish and greedy and they're embroiled in like unpleasant intrigues that they have basically created for themselves because there is various people who are in financial problems but it's it's like a fake financial problem right because they're rich so so it's like by definition it's bullshit and they're being really nasty to other people in their personal
0: lives a couple of the women upstairs the ones who are having the money problems or sort of being pressured by men are more much yeah. more sympathetic than some of the others but they're so cut off from other people because of the situations they're in that you don't get the sense of them like engaging meaningfully with other people right which is what you get from this relationship yeah. with the I mean Clive it's it's interesting to see characters. how like
1: the two halves of the kind of the cast you see the different ways that the communities are forming because obviously there is more of a sense of unity among the servants and there is the class unity among the upper class people, but there's no real sense that any of them actually like each other's company, which obviously is kind of an obvious statement to make in this type of story, because it's always about how all these rich people secretly hate each other. But they're all just measurable and terrible, and there's a lot of like abusive husbands and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, it's really bad. But what I like about this is that the downstairs, well, it's interesting because You have some people who, the sort of authority figures down there, some of them, uh, including Mrs. Wilson, the character played by Helen Mirren, who is very kind of just like uptight and displays no motion whatsoever. Really wonderful performance. Are very kind of attached to rules and decorum. And that's it. And that's what they care about. And the end. And then other figures are kind of more mocking. Yes, the word I'm looking for is um, socially renegade, I suppose. Like, a couple of them are definitely, like, sleeping around in a way that suggests they just, like, don't care at all. And so you have this sort of bubbling sense of alternative options for how to live, but it's not like there's it's presented as some sort of utopian, like, oh, it's all, you know, we're all subversive and like countercultural or like revolutionary politically down here it's just that it's slightly different or that there's some slightly alternative Modes, but you also have the very conservative types, and some people who hate each other as you would in that situation, and some people who like each other. So it's more just kind of varied in an interesting way that feels very realistic to how that situation would play out. Yeah,
1: when everyone's like up in each other's business, because everyone has to share rooms, and you're all eating together as a group, and you're all living together in the same house, and obviously all of the servants constantly know all of the like upper class people's business.
0: Well, right, they're kind of living through them, which they discuss at a certain point, like, why do we spend so much time thinking and talking about them? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's like celebrities.
0: Yes, exactly. Or even if, you know, like I've had that experience working at offices that like the sort of higher up people, you inevitably wind up talking about them a lot and like, what's going on in their lives or like psychoanalyzing them or like, that's was my experience.
1: I mean, this is also like another really great illustration of the whole Julian Fellows issue, because it's just everything in Downton Abbey is just like so, so much schmaltzier, you know, there is so much more pressure on the audience to be always sympathetic towards the aristocrat characters who by and large are the ones who are driving the plot and are the ones who are getting the really kind of sweeping and intense storylines. And although there are kind of a few storylines to do with the servants that are quite intense, they're portrayed either in a way that's like, look at these poor suffering, poor people, or they're just kind of sillier. But a lot of the time, also, you'll have an episode where the A-plot is sort of like, we have to cover up a murder among all of the beautiful, attractive aristocrats who are wearing gorgeous ball gowns. And then the subplot for a couple of the servants will be like, we've dropped a jar of jam. You know, it's (laughs) just like completely, it's just completely skewed. And it's, I feel like when you're actually fully in charge of that project and it's running for years, it's far more indicative of Julian Fellow's sort of overall attitude than this, which is far more conscious of the humanity of the servants on completely equal footing to the aristocrats.
0: Yes. And is intelligent about giving them their own personalities and issues, but making sure that their whole situation on a macro level is completely enmeshed with the upstairs characters, because that's how their lives work. Like it would be great if they could just separate themselves. But they literally cannot do that because their whole lives function around serving these people. I mean, it's it's always kind of interesting to me
1: to wonder people who really love stuff like Downton Abbey, to what extent you are imagining yourself in this at all. Cause like I feel like kind of the appeal of Downton Abbey is that it's total it's like total escapism. So you're watching it because you want to watch something where there's beautiful people in gowns and it's in a situation that's different from your own. But like watching Gosford Park. I feel like anyone watching Gospel Park, you should be able to understand that we would be all be the servants, right? Like none of us are going to be the aristocrats. There's only like 50 aristocrats in England, you know, and everyone else is the servants and we'd all be the people who would be living below stairs and scrubbing people's shirts. And I don't think anyone really kind of thinks about that really.
0: I mean, I don't see how on earth you watch this movie and not sympathize with the downstairs people. Well, precisely, that's precisely. Right? Like it's just... <laughs> And not, again, like, there are definitely some upstairs characters, particularly a couple of the women, and, um, oh, Tom Hollander. Tom Hollander. Tom Hollander has an amazing
1: scene with a couple of jars of jam, which is delightful. Uh, Um, But it's not even sort of, like, just the sympathy thing. It's just sort of the fact that this movie gives really serious, intensive storylines to the serving characters.
0: Yes. But but the effect of that should be... Not just that, like, you feel for them, but in terms of, like, where you position yourself. Not necessarily consciously, like, oh, if it were this time, I would be doing that. Because, like, if I'm looking at my family's, you know, financial history, like, I we would have been, like, upper middle class, whatever, at that point in time, right? Like, I would not have been doing that job. But you're meant to feel yourself on their side.
1: This actually just reminded me, I hadn't been thinking about this at all, but I just remembered that my
0: grandmother was was a housekeeper in a big house <laughs> yep. for a period of time. <laughs> so There you go. Yeah, I mean, the movie wants you to understand what's driving all of these people individually across the spectrum of characters. And again, there are some characters on the top side that I think you're meant to be pretty sympathetic to, but the ones that you're meant to be pretty sympathetic to up there are the ones who are in financial difficulty. It's yeah. so like the Tom Hollander character and, and his wife are having financial problems and he feels really emasculated. And isn't being taken seriously by anyone. And he's also and-
1: a military veteran because he is the one character that we know was in the military and they kind of refer to him as the commander. And then there was other, like, there was kind of other discussions of what was going on in the First World War. So he must have been a very young man in yes. the First World War. Um, but then there's the the Lord who just didn't fight because he was rich and got out of it. And then there's the Butler who was a conscientious objector and they have these, like, very radically different outcomes.
0: Yes. Versus, like, the James Willoughby character, Freddie, who is also, I guess he married, I don't remember the exact configuration of who married in and what, but he's lost all the money and he's his wife is the one who's wearing the dress multiple times. And um, he's just like an awful man. He's sleeping with one of the daughters of the family and you're not meant to feel sympathetic to him at all. You're meant to feel sympathetic to the wife and she's in this shitty situation because her husband has spent all her money and he's an asshole. And she has to sit here being mocked by all these people, even though it's not her fault. Right? So the people they're asking you to feel particularly sympathetic to of that group are the ones who really have been put in situations where they're at a disadvantage in some capacity. Whereas the really powerful people may be fun to watch. Like Kristen Scott Thomas is an absolute just delight in this movie. She is so Hideously bitchy in an amazing way. But you don't feel any emotion for her. Like she's just not a pleasant. what well, sort of person. like she she and
1: Maggie Smith are definitely those amazing sort of bitch characters <laughs> where yes. oh. they've just hired two like amazing actresses who know precisely how to pitch this content. And they also look really right. Like obviously a lot of the hair and makeup in this film do a lot of work in that regard but there's so many actors in this where it's you have you have cast a very english looking actor you know and there are some really great ones in here and maggie smith and chris and scott thomas they have the correct bone structure for this kind of material
0: (laughs) yes big time we also should mention briefly before we get to the end of the film which we've alluded to it but um the hollywood characters in the film also serve a really interesting function in terms of sort of illuminating everything that's going on socially in the movie, in addition to being very entertaining. So they've got literally Ivor Novello is visiting played really excellently by Jeremy Northam, who just does a great job. And then uh, Bob Balaban is playing Morris Weissman, who is a Hollywood director who directs Charlie Chan pictures, as he keeps saying. And he's doing research for uh, like Agatha Christie type movie, basically, which is why he's come on this trip. And he keeps saying over and over again that he's expecting a call from California, so like they have to get him when the call comes through. And he offers to like reimburse the call at one point, which is like the hugest faux pas ever. They're, like <laughs> I cracked up with so this. much when
1: that happened. It's like you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> no.
0: And then Brian Philippe plays their valet with like the worst Scottish accent you could possibly. Oh, it's so delicious. Imagine <laughs> I was enjoying that so much. <laughs> Mary, the Kelly McDonald character, obviously is Scottish, and she's just like, "What the fuck is up with this guy?" Like this is not right and he's an actor it transpires and um this gets revealed after the murder takes place because at that point you, you know it's not really a viable thing anymore and everyone is mad every single person is just like we do not want to deal with this like you know because he's betrayed the construct the social construct here and um just watching the ways that the English aristocrats do not know how to cope with these Hollywood people at all. It's hilarious. And it also represents...
1: It's the the classic premise of so many of these sort of early 20th century stories. Like, I capture the castle where it's like the Americans come in and the beginning of Downton Abbey is also like the Americans come in and all of these real-life aristocrats who basically married Americans for their money mm-hmm. and the Americans married into titles and it's just such a delightful trope that happens to this day quite frankly
0: oh yeah Absolutely. everyone wants a fucking castle <laughs> but what's he- what happens here isn't that exactly it's yeah, yeah. just that they've come to-, to visit and you don't have yet the sense of desire from the English characters particularly to deal with them except for the woman wearing the dress repeatedly, who's like, oh my god, it's Ivor Novello, as you would be. And uh, they just don't get it.
1: They're like, we can They don't watch movies, they don't really understand the concept of celebrities.
0: (laughs) Right, Maggie Smith is really, really disdainful. She's like, so how long do you have to keep making movies before you can quit? And he's like, well, until they stop casting me. Like, I don't, you know. And she's like, "Oh," And that, of course, is the future of fame and money and power right not just Hollywood but like that kind of thing and they don't get it at all whereas the people downstairs are all like thrilled that they get to hear Ivor Novello sing and play the piano briefly and the movie completely takes you with them to experience the wonder like the music is really lovely and you, you watch them sort of watching from the next room or dancing and you're meant to be carried along with that sense of awe which again signifies that you are with that half of the yeah. cast right
1: and it's also obviously it's kind of an an old trope to illustrate how rich people don't appreciate what they have but also it's so obvious in this movie that none of the rich characters really have any interests you know no. the main the main kind of guy who gets murdered he's mending watches or something when he gets murdered and obviously everyone's there to hunt but it's not one of these things where you see that like, oh, this person's the butterfly collector or this person is really proud of their massive library of antique books. It's like, they're just like gossiping, you know? Yeah,
0: <laughs> They're so bored. They have nothing to do. They play a bridge. <laughs> it's like shooting and playing cards, pretty much it. It's so grim. Okay. So conclusion of this film. Obviously, if you want to avoid spoilers, you should stop listening. So the head guy gets killed. He has been stabbed in the chest in his study. and Stephen Fry comes in and is like destroying the entire, you know
1: crime scene. We were actually kind of discussing this the other day that Stephen Fry doesn't actually have that many good roles. And obviously Stephen Fry isn't primarily an actor. He's a multimedia person. You know, he's a writer. He's a, you know, he's he's done like a whole variety of stuff. But in terms of his movie roles, it's because Stephen Fry is always Stephen Fry. It's not one of these Hugh Laurie situations where Hugh Laurie is sometimes Hugh Laurie and sometimes he's a really distinctive character. Stephen Fry, you're like, he's fucking Stephen Fry. And I feel like the only things where he's really had like a distinctive role are Actually, this, where he's still basically playing Stephen Fry, but he's perfectly selected, and Wild, the Oscar Wilde biopic, where he is perfectly cast and then Jeeves and Worcester. Yeah. And everything else is just like bad cameos.
0: Yeah. This I mean this just exploits him so yeah. perfectly, right? Because he's playing the he's playing the buffoon. Yes. Because I mean, obviously, yeah, you can't quite forget who you're watching, but I he's he's very good in it, like he is persuasive as the character. And he's playing such a sort of over-the-top comical person that it really is effective. And, um, yeah, he's just really ridiculous in a funny way. So he obviously does not get to the bottom of who killed Sir William because he's an idiot. And uh, it turns out that Clive Owen stabbed him, which is not shocking if you've been watching the movie, that that is yeah. What the movie is, is not framing
1: all of this as a mystery where we need to follow a bunch of complex clues.
0: <laughs> no, they set up in a really great way. Like everybody has a motive to murder this guy because he's such a fucking asshole. But it's not. I mean, it's pretty obvious that he's the one. Who's I mean, from. to me,
1: the greatest mystery of the whole film is why Kristen Scott Thomas's attractive sister wants to fuck him
0: because they cut cards over him when they were like 20 and she's yeah. still not over it. Uh, presumably he was more attractive at that yeah, age. Cause it's like, he's, he's not a catch. No, 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 no. <laughs> but, uh, it then is figured out that, uh, he was actually poisoned earlier. There was no blood from the wound. He was already dead. And, Clive Owen explains this to Mary Keller Kelly McDonald and is like, well, yeah, I, you know, I killed him, but I didn't actually kill him. So whatever. And she's kind of like, Oh my God, like scandalized by this. Uh, Although she sort of figured it out. But um, then he kisses her and it's very sexy and great scene. A plus the, who actually poisoned him is the Helen Mirren character. The, they've sort of planted seeds throughout this whole thing about Clive Owen being an orphan and also that uh, Sir William had had these sort of, this scheme set up for the factories that he ran where he would like knock up young female employees and then have the babies like farmed out. And it transpires that Clive Owen is Helen Mirren's son. So Sir William had told the girls that they are Children were going to be sent to like good families yeah, they were and they be were adopted sent to orphanages instead. And um, the cook is Helen Mirren's sister, which you don't find out until the end. And they just are known as like they hate each other, and all the servants just know that they hate each other. And she had had a similar situation, but she kept her baby, and then the baby wound up dying. And you have this amazing, amazing scene at the end where they finally sort of emotionally break down after having been very uptight in English. The entire movie, and clive on leaves, none the wiser that this is what happened, and uh, it's a perfect encapsulation of the whole sort of class and power. Because, like, situation. I just watched that, it was like a worse movie than
1: this. Like, the version of this film that was produced by the Weinsteins, which many of this type of film were, would have had like this sort of tearful reunion and all these explanations and people writing letters to each other. And it's like, no, you have a solution where characters have like 80% of closure, but. Like, the guy doesn't know who his mother actually is and doesn't know that she's alive. And, like, one other character incidentally does. And Kelly and Clive would have had this tiny affair, which probably will never continue. And you're like, oh, it's all unfinished. And it's like, yeah, because the entire British class system has fucked everyone.
0: Yes. It's, yeah, it's just perfect. Because you get enough resolution for it to feel very satisfying, but it's also like, oh, oh, not quite, not quite there. And Helen Mirren is... Just, I mean, she's so good in this, because she is completely impassive the whole time. I mean, you sense there's something going on, but it's very, very subtle. And then she loses it at the end in a way that feels very real and not histrionic at all. And because she's been so self-contained the entire time, it's very, very effective when she does finally break down. And, uh she has this, when she's explaining what has happened to Kelly McDonald, she has this amazing little monologue where she talks about how she's the perfect servant because she basically has no life herself, but she can anticipate everything that everybody needs and is going to do. And that's how she knew that Clive Owen was going to kill his father. And so she killed him first so that he wouldn't be responsible. And uh, it's just, it's so good. So intelligent. Oh, Amazing, amazing stuff. And really indicative of the fact that the movie is, I mean, it's such a fun watch. Like, it's so entertaining and pleasurable, but has this dark undercurrent underneath it that feels very real and handled in a sensitive and intelligent way, while also maintaining the entertainment of the film as a whole, I think. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good film. You should all watch it if you haven't. We would recommend it to all of you. We also will have this may be up already or it'll be up shortly after this, uh, a mini sode on our Patreon in which we debate whether the top ten worldwide grossing films of twenty nineteen exist or not. We'll be going through them and discussing whether exist? or not they're real.
1: We're about to find
0: out. Yes. Yeah. So you can subscribe to our Patreon to listen to that and get other fun content past and upcoming. And uh, yeah, we would like to thank Kira again for sponsoring this. This was one of the more fun episodes we've done in a while, I think, because this movie rules. So thank you so much. If you want to make us watch a movie, you can do that on Patreon as well. Gavia, where can our listeners find
1: you and your work online? Uh, well, first of all, just another reminder that we are eligible for a Hugo Award. Yes. And uh, if you want to read my work, you can find me on the Daily Dot, where I'm about to start reviewing the new Star Trek show, Picard. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore
0: Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast, And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.